0: Jeff, appreciate that a lot. Well, Becky and I are thrilled to be able to be here with you and to spend uh, today. I, I was told on the way in that someone thanked me for bringing wonderful weather to Ohio. I said, I, I, have, no, I, I have no ability to, uh, to Im- impact that, and someone said, we'll take credit for it anyway, so I will. I, get, I guess that's fine. Um, it, it really is good to be able to be with you. Thanks for leading in worship and just for the opportunity to be able to 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 be with brothers and sisters in Christ. And some of what uh, we were together last evening with a little dessert time with some of you and had a chance to hear a bit of what God's doing in your churches. And please, would you do me a favor today? Uh, as you see us around the building, just kind of pull us aside and share with me a little bit about what God's doing in your church. Share with both Becky and myself. We love to hear what is the Lord up to across the EFCA around the country. Because we're seeing, whether it is in small communities or large suburban areas or the inner cities of some of our great metropolitan areas in America, God is at work. And we want to be able to rejoice in that and to be able to know the good things that that God is up to. Now, some of you know a little bit about me, and I I actually, I grew up in an EFCA church, and and someone accused me once, uh, one of my associates in an early church that I served, that, that when they cut me, I'd bleed free church blood. And I guess that's probably true. Because that's just who I am as a part of this, this, this movement called the EFCA. And I, I remember as a young boy, when my family would travel from part of the country to part of the country, and we, when we were someplace on a weekend, we would go to an EFCA church. And we'd just say, well, is there a free church in this community? Well, let's go there. And when we would go, we had a pretty good idea that the church we would step into that Sunday would be kind of like the church we, that I, we were involved with. I mean, the music might be a little better if the church was larger. The preaching might be a little better if, depending upon who the pastor was. But for the most part, church to church around the country, there was a lot of similarities. And. Well, if you were to go across the country today, you'd find there may not be as many similarities in style and types of people that are in churches, and yet there is still something across the EFCA, and I've found this as we've traveled the country now for more than a year, meeting with people. There, there is a DNA that flows within the veins of the free church that was there 65 years ago, 100 years ago, and it's there today. And some of those are the things that I want to share with you and talk a little bit with you about this morning. You see, I grew up in a, in a small town in northern Minnesota, about 50 miles from the Canadian border. We used to say we had 10 months of winter and 2 months of bad sledding. We, we pray, I When I was a boy, I, I'm, you know, I, and there must be something wrong with me, I prayed for cold and snow. Because when it would come, we could they would flood the outdoor hockey rinks and we could play hockey. And uh, my hometown had, at that time, the largest snowmobile manufacturing plant in America was in my hometown. So it was all about playing ice hockey, riding snowmobiles, and it had to be cold to do that. So we sort of prayed for cold and snow. But in my little hometown, which even today is the most Norwegian ancestry community in America... Of a city over 5,000. I mean, it is, there was this little enclave of Norwegian Danish people. In, in fact, my grandmother, who immigrated from Norway as a little girl, I remember her talking about there was a free church in town and then there was an evangelical covenant church in town. She never referred to it as the covenant church, it was always the Swedes. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, we're getting together with the Swedes tonight. You know, as a little boy, I'm trying to figure out how this works. But that, that's sort of that community that I grew up in, and then from there went to university and then, and then to seminary, and, and after Becky and I were married, and we took the first church that we served in southeastern Minnesota in a beautiful little river valley community called Winona, Minnesota. It's a university town on the Mississippi River. And as we came into this community, we found out quickly that this college town really was a town filled with primarily Roman Catholic and Lutheran people. I mean, we did, we did a little survey around the church. I thought, who lives in this community? And so on a beautiful uh, you know, fall Sunday afternoon, a bunch of us from the church just went around in the neighborhood, probably a half a mile around the facility, just to find out who lives here. What we found out is that 95% of the people that lived around our church could tell you which Catholic or Lutheran parish they were a part of. Now, they maybe never went, but they were a part of that. They were Christmas and Easter, maybe kind of folks, but they could tell you what part of that, what particular church they were a part of. Then, after 11 years there, God moved us to San Jose, California, which when we got a first contact from the church, I'd literally had to pick a map up and find out where it was. And found out that San Jose is the capital of Silicon Valley in in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we moved into this city of, at that time, almost a million people in the city itself, and found out that on Easter Sunday, less than 10% of the population of our community were in a church of any kind, including the Mormon church. And so we went from this very religious community in the Midwest to this very irreligious community. And part of what I found, and I used to, I used to tease people, that, that what I enjoyed about being in San Jose is that the irreligious people were irreligious and proud of it, and they were okay talking to you about it. They weren't trying to hide something. And even today, the San Francisco Bay Area is the least church metropolitan community in America. And when I think about what's going on in our country today, it brings me to one of... We have four children, a daughter, twin sons, and a third son. One of our twin boys is a church planter. He and his wife are in San Francisco... Doing church planning. And I look at the world that my son Brent and his wife Sarah and their two beautiful little girls are in today a city of 850,000 people where 65% of the population claims zero religious affiliation at all. I mean, just zero. And I look at where we're moving and things that are happening in America and I think, you know what, the world my son is ministering in is way different than the world I stepped into when I finished seminary. And you may sit there and you go, well, that's those crazy people that live in California. That's, that's, I mean, that's San Francisco. Of course that's, of course people there are irreligious. I had a conversation last night in the dessert time with someone from Cleveland who was telling me of some of what's going on in that city. I've talked to people all around the U.S. and the heartland of America who are saying this. There seems to be a shrinking pool of people in America that have a positive predisposition to the gospel and church. And there seems to be a growing group of people in America that may not be antagonistic to the church and the gospel, but they're pretty ambivalent toward it. It's kind of like, well, if it's good for you, that's fine. What's good for me is good for me. And that's a bit more of the world that we're living in today. So as I begin to think about how do we as the church begin to do ministry in the midst of this rapidly changing America that we live in, I think it's important that we step back and say, so how is our culture changing? What is going on around us? You don't have to look too far and dig too deep to realize very quickly the rapid changing climate on sexual ethics in America. Someone came up to me at the dessert time last night and said, hey, thank you for writing something right after the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage. We needed something to help us think this through. And I told him, I said, do you realize that was like day six after I stepped into this role? So it's day six. Boom, this thing rolls out. And what I found, and the reason I even wrote something is as that, as that decision came out, what I found is people's response often was either one of fear or anger. It's a fear that, oh my goodness, the whole world is changing so rapidly, everything's going to go, j- it's just all going down. Or a sense of anger where people are saying, someone stole my culture, someone stole my country. What's going on here? What's happening around us? And the sense of fear and anger, neither of which are representative of the heart of Christ. And when I think of those rapidly changing ethics around us, I mean, issues of transgender, I mean, I would never have thought as a young pastor 35 years ago that we would have a, a post-theology conference day on gender dysphoria, which is helping the church understand how do, we, how do we come alongside people who are struggling to figure out which gender am I really? I mean, is that something that, I, as a young pastor, I thought, I wouldn't, that wouldn't even have been a topic And yet it's a relevant issue in the world today that we have to think biblically about. And the fact that even the next generation's perspectives on some of the things that that the church would have held very highly as you look across our country, across America, that there are many folks who would say it is a greater evil to not recycle than to look at pornography. Pornography. We live in a rapidly changing world. Think of the rapid move of people to cities. Did you know that every 30 days, about 6 million people move from rural areas into cities around the world? It is like every 30 days, the equivalent of, what, of where I've lived for 23 years, the San Francisco Bay Area, every 30 days, the equivalent of that metropolitan population moves into cities. It's happening all over the world. You think of the racial tensions that are not far under the surface in American cities. You know, it wouldn't have been too, too, uh, just a few years ago that if I would have mentioned Ferguson, Missouri, no one would have known anything about Ferguson, Missouri. Now I mention Ferguson, and what comes to your mind immediately? It's racial tensions and anger. You think about economic uncertainty for so many people, I've, I'm just, I'm amazed as I go around the country and talk to folks, there's this sense of what's coming next. We don't know. There's a sense of economic uncertainty The realities, the political and economic realities around us related to everything from from the changing political face of the world to the issue of refugees that are moving all over. I talked to our staff from Reach Global that are working in Europe, and they have told me the face of Europe is changing, and it's between the issues of refugees and the issues of terror and terrorism. Our world is changing so, so, so quickly. And I think for us in the church, and this is where I think the sense of we're feeling like either fear or anger as I've talked to believers, that we're realizing that in America, the church is no longer in the center of our culture. The church is on the periphery of American culture. And we've been there for a long time. We just didn't realize it. And it's time for us to step back and say, okay, so we're on the periphery of culture. Now, let's not face it with anger and fear. Let's rather say that God is God and he's placed us here for this incredible time. And I think some of the most amazing opportunities for the gospel are yet to come in America. And if you think that our, that our country is really fallen apart really quickly, let me encourage you. Do some study of church history. Do some study back over the life of some of the great characters in the scriptures. You want a good book to read? Read Larry Osborne's book, Thriving in Babylon, about life. what life was like for Daniel and his friends. And it was way worse than we have life in America today. And I'm just thrilled that Jesus is king. And what did he say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love that. And when the darkness is dark, the light shines bright, and when I think of what's going on in the church today, I see so much of the hand of God. I mean, we're we're seeing exciting ministries, ethnic and multi-ethnic ministries across the US, churches that are saying, how do we really engage our communities with the gospel? I mean, I, I walked in the warehouse last night, and Ronnie, you need to know just how, how much my heart just was singing as I walked in here. I thought this, even this facility, repurposing a building that was just that was was like screaming out into this community of the brokenness of our world, and to repurpose it in a way that Jesus is glorified here. I mean, that that's what we're seeing in churches. We're seeing people's lives being changed, and yet when I think about it, I really do believe that if we are going to make an impact in our world for the gospel. It's not about me coming and talking to you about some slick new program, some great idea, some new strategy that we need to do. It is not about that. I believe it is a critical issue for the church today is to go back and focus on those foundational, essential issues of ministry. It's understanding who God is, how He's spoken to us, the impact of His Holy Spirit in our lives, and it's helping people that are far from God to come to know Him and disciple them so they can reach other people who are far from God. Because I, here's one of the questions I'm asking myself about the free church. If you look at kind of our growth pattern over the last 20 to 30 years, the last decade, the EFCA has pretty much plateaued. We plateaued in the numbers of churches. We plateaued and we've sort of hit this plateau point. And one of my questions is, I've been pondering that is this, did a significant amount of that growth curve that took place when at one time Christianity Today described the EFCA as one of the fastest growing denominations in America about 20 years ago was a lot of that growth because we were seeing people come to know Christ that had come out of some type of mainline church background. They had some church experience. They maybe didn't know Jesus, and it was through the ministry of EFCA churches that were existing and planted in communities that people came to Christ, and so we saw churches grow and churches be planted. And today, the challenge is, how do we reach people who are far from God? And I'm not sure that we're real good at that. But it will not take some slick strategy. It's not going to say, Kevin's going to come here and go, I have the magic pill you can take and it'll suddenly turn that around. It's not. It's coming back to those essentials that will help us to understand how do we glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. How do we see a generation of disciple-makers raised up so that the transforming power of the gospel can be seen in the lives of individuals and families and literally whole communities? How do we do that? And I think it begins, it begins by looking at some of those foundational things. To grab a Bible, and I want want you to look with me at Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to be in both of the sessions today, and we're going to, Take the next 15 minutes or so, and we're going to look at at Mark chapter 1, the first few verses. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how Mark starts his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven And believe in the gospel. I want you to look back with me at verse one. You know, Mark's gospel starts very different, in a very different way than the other two synoptic gospels. If you were to look at Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke both have a birth narrative of Jesus a little bit different. Luke's obviously is extended. I mean, Luke talks about Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist and and the angel appearing to Mary and the shepherds and all of that is in Luke. But but Matthew's gospel as well has Joseph finding out that Mary's pregnant and he's going to put her away and divorce her quietly. and, And an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And so he did. There's these wonderful birth narratives. Mark doesn't do that. And I've asked myself the question. I step back and say, so why? It's like Mark says, I just want you to understand that Jesus is a part of God's incredible plan from beginning to end. It's like he just sort of drops in the middle of God's story And he says in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now for a good Jewish person that would have read that first verse, what do you think the first verse of a book that started the beginning would, would connect them back to? The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God did this. And I think it's like Mark is saying, this is a part of God's plan from the very beginning. And if you go into what Paul wrote in Ephesians where he would say, even before the foundation of the earth, God had a plan. But the foundation of that plan, and here's what I want you to see at the very beginning. Mark says, it is the beginning of the gospel. And he's not talking about the book here. He's talking about the good news. It's the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you just even look at those names, Jesus meaning the Lord saves. Christ meaning the Messiah, the Son of God. This incredible fact that that the divinity of Jesus Christ in that one verse... He says, the foundation of all that we do is keeping our eyes on Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, right? Who for the prize set before him continued to press forward. I was with a group of, of uh, in fact, it was a district conference in the Midwest several months ago. And I, after one of the sessions, I, one of the pastors of uh, EFCA Church in the Midwest pulled me aside. He said, I'd love to talk with you. And we, so we sat down over a cup of coffee and we're, ch- we're chatting away. And, and he, made a, he made a statement that has that just been ringing in my ears. I haven't been able to forget it. He said, Kevin, I've really been thinking. And he said, I, I think a good bit of what is talked about in our churches in America today could just as easily be spoken in a mosque Now, I mean, I about fell over. I'm going, you're a a pastor? You've even, like, written books and you're saying this. And I said, what do you mean? Unpack that for me. He said, here's what I mean. He said, I hear a lot of people using God talk. I don't hear a lot of people talking about Jesus. And he said, the focal point of our faith is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so, if we are going to be the people that God has called us apart to be, then we must have our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the foundation stone. I would just encourage you, as you're with people in your churches, please talk about Jesus. I want... I just long for in my own life, I want to grow deeper and deeper in my understanding of and love for the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the one who shows me who God is. I mean, That's what he said to his followers. They said, show us the Father. And he said, you mean I've been with you this long and you still don't get it? You see me, you see him. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus. But then look with me at verse 2 because Mark goes on and he quotes... As he says, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes some scriptures about John the Baptist. And what, what I find is interesting here is that he quotes a scripture from Exodus, one from Isaiah, and one from Malachi. So what's he quoting from? He's quoting from the Pentateuch or the Torah. He's quoting from the major prophets and the minor prophets. It is like Mark is saying, all of the scriptures talk about this. In fact, he says, as is, as is written by Isaiah the prophet which if you were to look at that, you go, wait a minute, Isaiah only wrote a portion of that. It's because what he's saying is it's like in the spirit, in the, in the heart of the message of the prophet Isaiah. This is the message that comes across from the, from the Torah, the Pentateuch at the beginning, the major prophets, the minor prophets. God all spoke about this. If we're going to be the people God wants us to be, we keep our eyes on Jesus. And we keep our hands on the Word of God. You know, one of the things that I loved about growing up in an EFCA church is I realized as a young boy, we're a people of the book. That watch cry that from the early days of the Free Church movement in the Scandinavian countries as people were coming here, where stands it written? Where is it in the Word of God? And we're people of the book. We understand the authority of Scripture. The teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to take this Word and and speak it into our hearts. The significance of prevailing prayer as we pray over the Word of God, asking God to take the Scriptures and to transform our hearts. It is the fact that the Word of God informs everything. We're people of the book. In fact, this was pre-Awana days. You can tell I, I wanna was probably around. We didn't have it in the far reaches of the hinterlands of northern Minnesota where I grew up. We, we had, this, we had this, this kids' club called, uh, called Jet Cadets. I actually found somebody that was in Jet Cadets once, and he could sing the theme song with me. You were in Jet Cadets too? Okay. <clears throat> I learned a ton of Scripture as a boy. And one of the things I loved about being involved in my little home church is the Word of God meant something, and we you know we, we memorized it. You know, I look at where we are today in America, and I've seen this really clearly lived out because I, I spent a decade of my life doing ministry all over sub-Saharan Africa, and I realized that if you don't speak English, there are very, there's, there's nowhere near as many resources available for you to study the Scriptures as there is in English. I mean, a lot of Africa is Francophone. They speak French, or, or you want to learn a new word today, they were Luophone. They, they, they spoke Portuguese, that was a two sort of language, three languages of education, English, French, and Portuguese. And if you spoke English, there was a ton of resources available, which in America means what? We have more biblical resources available today than ever in the history of the world. There's books. There's computer programs. I have more study capability in my iPad than my uncle who was with Jesus, who was a free church pastor his whole life, had in his library. Podcasts books on tape, books you can pick up everywhere. And what I'm finding is it is not a dearth of information. It is a dearth of obedience that's hurting the church in America. And I know people say, well, America is biblically illiterate, and that's true. It's not that we don't have access to resources. It's that the question is, what are we doing to learn them and how are we obeying them? I did an internship in my home church, and the pastor that I did an internship with, bright guy, I mean, tell you the kind of guy he was, he did his quiet time in Greek and Hebrew because he did not want to lose his language skills. I just looked at him and I said, You are like, either you're crazy or you're way smart. I mean, it's one or the other. I'm not sure which. And I asked him once because he was a theologian. I mean, he's a pastor theologian. And, and I asked him, I said, so, so, Curtis, you ever thought about doing a PhD? He could have done one in his sleep. You ever thought about doing a doctorate? He looked at me He said, No. I said, How come? I mean, is it too much time? Is it cost too much? And he looked me right in the eyes and he said, You know, Kevin, I, I guess I could, but... You know what I understand? I, I know more right now than I'm really able to obey. I, I think maybe it's that I need to spend more time obeying what I know. Okay? And, and he wasn't a guy that stopped learning. He learned his whole life. The struggle right now is he has Parkinson's and the beginnings of Alzheimer's. But he learned his entire life, but it was an issue of obedience. And when I think about the Word of God, it's an issue of obedience to the Scripture. So I love the way Mark starts his gospel. He, he focuses on Jesus. Our eyes are on Jesus. The Word is in our hand. And then I want you to look down with me as we think through this text to those last verses that I read as Jesus began His ministry down in verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Boy, there's a lot in that statement. Can you imagine going on? what's going on in Jesus' heart? His cousin's arrested. He knows enough about what's coming. You know, this is the beginnings of what's really going to lead to why I'm here. And he came into Galilee to his home region, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we have our eyes on Jesus, we have the word of God in our hands, and friends, we need to have the gospel in our hearts. It's about the good news. It's about taking that good news to a broken and and, and dying world and to say, God loves you enough that He has a way that He wants to to touch your life. And He recognizes your brokenness. And I love the fact that the Scriptures tell us that through the gospel, God is reconciling a broken world and broken people to himself through the finished work of Jesus. And, and he's called us to that ministry of reconciliation so that others can be reconciled to God. And he's called us as his ambassadors to be saying to people, crying out to them, be reconciled to God in Christ. And when I think about this issue of the gospel, of what this good news means, I'm afraid that, that on one hand, we, we, have, we have focused so much on what my good friend Dennis Tongoy in Nairobi, Kenya, took calls, the pinnacle of the gospel, which is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, which is the critical part of the gospel. Without that, we have no gospel. But I think we've missed the fact that there's transformational implications of that as to how we live. And so we simply say, if you get made right with God, you're good, you're in. And we've forgotten the fact that there's transformational implications to that. In other words, that if my life is made right with Christ, that ought to change the rest of how I live, give you a snapshot of what I think that means. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If, uh, I've, I've said this in multiple places. I think Genesis 1 and 2 could well be some of the least understood scr- passages in the Bible. And by understood, this is what I mean. We tend to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and focus on origins. We want to know where in the world did we come from. And is it, you know, we're focusing on the right things, the historical Adam and Eve, the significance of the Creator God and His power, and and we want to try to figure out, so where did all of this come from? And we tend to look at Genesis 1 and 2 through the eyes of origins. I think what opened Genesis 1 and 2 up for me is when I began to look at them through these lenses that say, you know what, that's the way God intended it to be. I mean, God intended us... To live, in a sense, like Genesis 1 and 2 is. So we live in a right relationship with Him. We live in a right relationship with each other. If you look at Adam and Eve, a right understanding of self, a right understanding of God's work He has for us in the world. And so if you look then, as you go from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis 3, here's what you find. Is that in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin and disobey, because they want to become like God, they want to be God, they sin, what happens? Their relationship with God is broken. And they run and hide because they're afraid. They cover themselves with fig leaves because they're ashamed. They blame each other for the problem. And God says, oh, by the way, your, your work, your labor, in a sense, in, in this world is going to be impacted because of this. So you see... Their relationship with God was tainted. Their understanding of their, themselves is tainted. Their relationship with each other was tainted. And even their understanding of what God had called them to do. All of it impacted by sin. Now, if the, as the gospel brings us into a right relationship with God, which is the pinnacle, the essence of the gospel, then there ought to be some transformational implications of that, that it ought to change my relationship with you. It ought to change how I see myself through the eyes of God. And it ought to change how I see what God's called me to do in the world. That's the transformation that the gospel can bring. And so when I think of us as gospel people, and we have our eyes on Jesus, the book in our hands, the gospel in our heart, what we're bringing to people is to say, as we look to Jesus and we see His Work on the cross on our behalf, His glorious resurrection, which is the essence, that is the gospel essence, has transformational implications for us, and it changes how I relate to you. It changes how I see myself. It changes my work in the world. And when we come to understand those three simple things I've just talked to you about, it changes how we live and how we do ministry. This afternoon, I want to talk with you about the latter part of Mark chapter 1. So in light of what we have just talked about, this significant foundation of Jesus, the Word, and the Gospel, it gives us a compelling purpose for what He has us to be doing. I want to share that with you this afternoon because I think as we come back to those foundation pieces, what we're going to see is God has some incredible things in your community that he wants to see happen as we keep our eyes on Jesus. We live out and obey his word and we bring the gospel with us wherever we go. It's going to make an impact. I want to pray for you and then we have a break and you have some seminars coming at at 11.15. So I'm trying to be a good boy and keep us within time, Jeff. So I'm trying. You really help me out. There's a clock up here, so it's a really good thing. Otherwise, a guy who spent almost 15 years of traveling and preaching in Africa, would they tell you, just preach till you're done. You'd be in trouble. Okay. Can I pray for you? And is it okay if I just miss everyone to a break, or do you have some information? Okay. Father, I ask now, take these things we've talked about, we, just, we don't want to live in fear, Lord. We don't want to live in a sense of being angry that something's been stolen for us. No, we, we want to live as people whose eyes are on Jesus, whose hands are on the Word, and whose heart is filled with the Gospel. That's who we are. Teach us how to live that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.